I think niceness has really, really thick walls that keep us pretty small and narrow as opposed to pushing and provoking and challenging and imagining and dreaming and getting messy. If we say something mean, but we say it in a nice way somehow... It cancels out. And so I think choosing niceness is an invisible shield and armor that is to insulate and protect us and ultimately to serve and center ourselves. There are many cultural idiosyncrasies that I recall fondly from growing up in Minnesota. Like when the temperature hits 40 degrees, it's declared shorts weather and how high school hockey tournament season feels like a state holiday. I love how Minnesotans say pop instead of soda. And yes, I still say, you betcha. Now, I also grew up with the distinct awareness that people were either nice or mean. (laughs) Shoot, I spent my formative years, kindergarten through 12th grade, in the land of 10,000 lakes, which is also known for its own flavor of nice, called Minnesota nice, which in fact is not so nice all the time. Now, I can recall how Minnesota nice can sometimes be fairly benign, where, for example, you're at a grocery store and an extra cash register opens up after lines have been building, and you'd see two people volley back and forth in in debate about going to the opened uh, cash register lane, saying, you go, oh, no, no, you go, oh, you go, no, seriously, you you go on, and this would go on and on (laughs) until someone else jumps in line or someone acquiesces. I also remember a time when I was back home visiting for a friend's wedding. I'd been out of the state for a while, and it was my late 20s. And at the reception, a couple of my high school friend's moms kind of weirdly cornered me outside of the fancy hotel bathroom. They were both smiling, but like kind of like a weird, tight smile. And the vibe was pleasant but distant, leaving me feeling awkward as I could not read what the situation was and what was going on. But, you know, I was excited to see them and even more curious on why they'd singled me out to talk. And while holding this forced smile and looking me up and down, one of the moms said, you know, Rebecca, you're doing so well. (laughs) Like, yeah, okay. And after a brief moment of letting them know where I'd been working and how well college went, they went on their merry way. And as polite and on the surface flattering this exchange might seem on the outside to someone. It was a classic example of the dark side of Minnesota nice because if they were really being honest, they were like, whoa, Rebecca, you were a freaking hot mess in high school and it seemed you could barely keep it together at times and we're kind of shocked seeing how well you're doing today. You know, that may not have felt very nice, but it have been really honest. Probably would have been more of a fruitful conversation and led to more connection, right? Now, I see Minnesota tripes abound, but I also remember how this cultural way of communication avoids direct confrontation or conflict with a placating smile or over-the-top politeness. And as my example that I just shared about my interaction at my friend's wedding, this kind of nice often serves as a passive-aggressive approach that buries one's real feelings and beliefs. Now, it took me years to unpack the costs of choosing nice and how nice and kind are distinctly different. And for a long time, I thought they were one and the same. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they heal from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. I continue to rumble with discerning the difference between choosing a nice response or choosing a kind response. And my journey started with like first an intellectual understanding of the difference between nice and kind. And I see and experience nice as appeasing and complicit. And I view kind as loving and generous. And This breakdown often resonates with those I work with when talking about the difference between the two. But I also find an intellectual understanding of these words can fall flat without a sense of what it feels like to respond from an embodied place of niceness or from an embodied place of kindness. And my internal family systems lens helps me see niceness more as a protector 
that works hard to keep me from feeling vulnerable and to mitigate risk by over-functioning and over-accommodating others. Its job is to protect me from backlash and can often lead to me shrinking from my courage when accountability and transparency are needed instead. Niceness, it feels like a tightness in my chest and throat, and it can feel gross at times, and other times if it feels dissociative and reflexive when fear is high. Now, I see kindness connected to compassion, which is one of the traits IFS calls self or self-energy, which serves as our true essence and where those parts of us that protect the experience healing from our inner team. And when I lead with kindness, I feel clear and connected to my values, even if there's a threat to being misunderstood. I'm more focused on the well-being of others rather than protecting myself at the expense of others and doing the right thing. You know, I, I end up sacrificing my integrity by choosing to go along to get along when I choose nice over kind. And I stay silent instead of standing up for the wrongs around me when I choose nice over kind. I care more about the opinions and needs of others over my own when I choose nice over kind. And now nicest is a powerful insidious protector. And when you respond from nicest, your inner system is telling you consciously or not to stay safe or protect regardless of the impact it has around you. And sometimes choosing nice to appease and accommodate feels like the only option when the threat of backlash jeopardizes your safety or your job. And if you live and work in a space that requires you to appease at the expense of living authentically, that sure could take a toll on your well-being. And I feel the burden of niceness in my body from living outside my values and truth. You know, the, the nausea on my stomach and the clenching in my jaw remind me when I default to niceness or I'm the recipient of niceness. <laughs> and these days I always feel it when it shows up. And, and it's a powerful trailhead for me to get curious about what's happening inside of me and around me. When you try to discern between whether you're leading from kindness or niceness, getting curious about your inner agendas and motivations will definitely bring you clarity. And if you choose an action with an agenda or how you're perceived, then you're probably defaulting to nice. But on the other hand, if you choose an action that's rooted in kindness, the focus moves from you to care for the other person. You know, again, kindness is loving and generous, even when not deserved, which makes it hard for me a lot of the times, especially these days. Kindness honors boundaries and cares more about supporting others than being misunderstood. And I've learned from me, I, I move out of kindness when I'm not externally motivated and I'm more fueled by my courage and my values. And I, I see how kindness requires a lot of confidence and courage to hold my boundaries, speak truth, and disagree with others. And I see how kindness requires a lot of confidence and courage to hold my boundaries, speak truth, and disagree with others. And when I default and lead from niceness, I end up sugarcoating and people-pleasing. And while this may offer some relief, it doesn't get me off the hook and this posture usually creates more stress and internal dissonance. When I reflect on the times I default to niceness, I see how niceness is more than just a cultural response, but one connected to my capacity for discomfort. Echoes from the traumas in my story often rear up and bring my niceness protector into action. And when I'm around certain personalities or situations, I can feel activated and the memories my body and nervous system hold rise up and can overwhelm me. A lot of my own personal work leads me to recognize a pattern of protection through placating and appeasing over the years. And it's not an excuse. It's just data. And sometimes it was just to stay safe, right? Keeping the peace meant no harm done with words or fists. Other times, niceness protected from feeling ashamed or ridiculed. Now, I know from my work over the years that I'm not alone in being raised to put my own needs aside for others, furthering the belief that I'm automatically mean if I don't choose nice. And this is such a problematic binary, leaving no room for nuance or context. It still takes a lot of work to help the parts of me that want to choose nice to, to relax. But this is the work and a part of being deeply human. I see my feelings of overwhelm and activation as just data, not my identity. And I have collected a lot of data around how I default to niceness and what it feels like to receive niceness over the years. 
And when I lead with kindness, I feel grounded in my body. It feels scary, but makes room for hard conversations, growth, falls, struggles. This is the space where I feel most alive. And when you lead with kindness, you need the capacity to receive and navigate the responses of others. Kindness stirs up vulnerability because we don't know how we'll be received, how we'll be perceived, or how others will respond. And our brains love to dress rehearse potential scenarios and talk us out of staying true to ourselves and others. I believe this is especially common when navigating conversations and feedback around race, gender, ability, and so much more. Now, my Unburdened Leader guest today helps me dig deep into the intersection of niceness, whiteness, and standing up against racism. Jenny Booth Potter is a creative producer, storyteller, and co-host of The Next Question, a web series about expanding our imagination for racial justice. She has also co-led racial justice trainings across the country for churches and organizations and is a founding partner of Herself Media, a company that aims to create stories that empower and bring joy to Black women. Jenny's first book, Doing Nothing is No Longer an Option, One Woman's Journey into Everyday Anti-Racism, just released this month, October 2022. Jenny and her husband make their home outside of Chicago with their two boys and one wild puppy. Now listen for Jenny's view on niceness and the role it plays when hard conversations come up. Pay attention to when Jenny shares the pivotal moment when she realizes she can't do everything, but doing nothing was not an option. And notice when Jenny notes the importance and challenges on getting curious about whether we're standing with the oppressed or the oppressor. Now, please welcome Jenny Potter to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Jenny, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I want to kick off by talking about a topic that I can rant about a lot. (laughs) And I'd like for you to tell me what is choosing nice and how can it lead to more harm? Ooh. (laughs) So we're just taking a real easy, (laughs) easy first. Not what is breakfast. Yeah, no. Choosing nice. Oh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is you're choosing nice over a lot of other things that matter a lot more. Um, You're prioritizing kind of social norms as opposed to imagination for how things could be. I think niceness has really, really thick walls that keep us pretty small and narrow as opposed to pushing and provoking and challenging and imagining and dreaming and getting messy, there is so much safety and comfort in niceness because it's often what we point to. We say, well, I know this terrible thing. I I know I said or did or thought or acted in this terrible way, but people that know me know that I'm really a nice person. It's it's almost this like catch-all for any bad behavior. If we say something mean, but we say it in a nice way, somehow <laughs> it cancels out. Um, so I think ni- choosing niceness is choosing, you know, Brene Brown talks all the time about this like armor, right? And so I think choosing niceness is an invisible shield and armor that is to insulate and protect us. And ultimately to serve and center ourselves. So how does choosing niceness then lead to more harm? We're protecting ourselves, Mm -hmm. but how does that lead to more harm around us? I mean, when people are on like the defensive, I just don't know how we, how we progress, right? If we're constantly saying we're, we're, you know, you were trying to like dig ourselves out of a trench. How do we ever build anything? How do we ever grow? How do we ever let anything take root? So uh, I just don't think it's sustainable. I don't think it's a sustainable way. If you actually are in, in a space where you want to grow, it's, it will halt all growing from occurring. It will halt all growing from occurring. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting. Anyone who knows me or works with me knows that I will say niceness is appeasing and complicit. 
Mm. And kindness is loving and generous, where the messy, the hard, but the true and the aligned happens. It's complicated. But niceness is often violence, being appeasing Mm. and complicit. So I'm curious, can you give me a personal example of when you chose nice over kind? (laughs) Sorry, I'm like, which to to choose from? Right. I have a lot, but I'm going to go with actually how I open up my book, which is I'm being interviewed um, for a like racial justice journey at my college. And in the interview, they ask me, so why do you want to go on this? Like, why do you want to have this experience? And I remember, I remember saying like, like really struggling with that question of like, why do I want to do this? And what ended up coming out was (laughs) I said, I really want to do something beyond just smiling at Black people that I see in the street. I find myself doing this. I find myself smiling and noticing and being extra friendly. But I feel like that isn't actually doing anything as I read the news and I'm learning in, in different classes about the disparity in income and disparity. And, you know, just like all these things. Like, I don't think my smiling is doing enough. So they let me go on this trip. And I think there was out of that, I don't know if it was so much niceness. It was a, I get this now. So people need to listen to me. And so if I ask you something, if I ask you about this, I'm going to do it in my nice way, but also in the way that says you don't, you get that I get this kind of a mm. kind of a approach. So and I think that's a layer to it too of this like aren't you so lucky that I'm here? Aren't you so lucky that I'm like doing this work? I don't have to be doing this work. I could be doing other things. I could be ignorant like all these other white people, but aren't you so lucky that I don't just smile anymore mm. that I've taken, you know. And so there was this really like a um, self-righteousness almost oh, that came complete, in there. Yeah, and and I think it was I can't relate at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's a lot of roots in in nice. I mean, because I love your definitions of niceness versus kindness, because that's something I've there's nothing courageous about being nice. It's a little eye for an eye. There's like an exchange happening where I think kindness fights through that in a totally different way. And I don't think I was I wasn't being kind. I kept going back to that defensive layer that like, but wait, I'm being nice, or wait, I get this, or wait, like. Why don't you see it just, yeah, it's self-righteous and it's ultimately incredibly self-centered. Uh, when we are choosing niceness, mm. I think it, we are keeping, it's all about how I was perceived or how I behaved or how I felt about myself as opposed to how it's experienced by anyone else. Exactly. And I feel like for me, when I have those moments where I protect with niceness and it hits me later, like I want to go take a shower because I realize like I'm like so grossed out by the whole situation but I'm also aware too of how quickly I default that because I'm trying to protect myself from harm but then I am not protecting others from harm well and it's not just harm it is our belief about who we are tell me that's if your whole identity or like you know you just think about I was about to say grooming, which maybe <laughs> grooming, rearing, you know, how you were raised. And especially as like a white Christian woman, like cisgendered woman, what do we have if we don't have our niceness? If we are nice and beautiful and thin, what else is there? So now you're taking away, <laughs> you're taking away one of these core markers of my identity. And that, when that thread starts to unravel, where will it end? Who am I really? Because mm-hmm. we are not unsafe when we're like, when we're being nice. Like, are we actually in, are we at risk of harm? Like actual physical harm? Now we, I would, yes, I would argue that yes, like we are, because we're choosing things that keep us maintaining status quo, maintaining power structures. Like we're not on any sort of healing journey. Um, so there is harm happening, but it's, I, I don't think it's the harm that we're worried about. We're worried right. about who we are 
being called into question and having to grapple with that. That is terrifying for people. What has been one of your pillars? Yeah, because it's like, and so many of those that identify as female work so hard to not be the recipient of being identified as a bitch, right? And so, <laughs> totally. But you know, it's interesting because you know, for me, I've got trauma in my story, and so there, mm. I've noticed even in my own waking up journey, I've had to work through my niceness to know I know how to keep the peace. I mean, mm. shoot, I, I went to become a psychotherapist. Right. I mean, come on, um, you got some skills. I got some skills and, but I'm noticing then I'm doing the nod or I'm not, I'm not being authentic and I'm just mm-hmm. kind of, you know, de-escalating things that I think, you know, so having to do the, the more that I've done my own work, the more I can help my inner system know this isn't back in our story, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we're okay now. We got this. And I feel like it's almost this dance of identity, like you're talking about, mm-hmm. And for those who have to do their own trauma work to sit with the discomfort of not appeasing, of not going along to get along, right? Yes. One of my kind of mentors, and I write about her a little bit in the book because, yeah, but she, and she's a white woman. And she said to me, she said, Jenny, the most dangerous people are those who have been harmed and who like who hold harm and privilege like in each hand who have been (laughs) held down by systems and who also uphold those systems because at any point we get to choose if we're the victim or the victor right like we get we get to choose it we we get get to actually we have a choice we get to say and i don't know your story so i want to be very sensitive um but we get to say, oh, I feel like I'm being called out for disparity and life being, well, you know what? I had it hard too. I had this thing in my past or I had, the, it, my life wasn't all easy just because I'm white. Like, so we get to go into that mode of the, I'm, no, I'm a victim too. And that language is very, it's problematic. And then we also have this alliance with others that do hold power. And so we do get to say, oh, and and even, you know, like beauty standards or (laughs) just so, you know, like affirmative action actually benefits white women more than it does any person of color. It is a dance like you were talking about. And it's really, if you're in, you're in constant like check mode of, yes, I'm on my own healing journey. And yes, my story matters. And yes, there's parts that I'm working through and also this experience by this other person or this institution that's harming other people, like to be able to hold that yes and space, right? That's, that's takes so much grace for yourself, I think. Well, it was a bit of a brain explosion because yeah. it's the intersection of healing and transforming and then realizing how much I still lean on systems that can protect or how much I was supporting systems that mm-hmm. were just as violent. And it's this weird like mind F yeah. trying to detangle and deconstruct it all. Yeah. And it's not tidy and nice likes tidy. There are social norms on this that are so ingrained. And you're right. It does not like nuance. And what we are talking mm-hmm. about is incredibly nuanced. And, and to hold nuance means holding an immense amount of discomfort and the gray, which you write a lot Mm -hmm. about in Mm -hmm. your book. And, you know, before I move off of niceness, I'm wondering if there's, you know, if you can articulate any real or potential consequences for you and others when you choose nice. I think what niceness does is it gives us something to point to other than pointing and looking in the mirror and reflecting on ourself. So true. Oh, the consequences of that are incredibly broad. <laughs> you know, I worked in an organization where they talked a lot about people's blind spots, right? Like, oh, like you need other people to be able to point out what you're missing on seeing. And I would argue that the consequence for choosing niceness is it's not just like we're not seeing our blind spots, but we're not even seeing ourselves accurately. 
And if we aren't seeing ourselves accurately, how are we looking at the world accurately? How are we looking at the institutions that we're a part of accurately? Like it is, we, I mean, we are literally I, blinded, right? We're blinded by yeah. whiteness. And so that is not, that's an inherent, we're, we're blinded by niceness and we're like driving cars and, you know, flying, you know, piloting airplanes. Like we're doing really dangerous, like harmful, dangerous things, <laughs> thinking that we can see or thinking that we can see enough and we, and niceness shields us from seeing fully. And just thinking of niceness is violence is the archetype of the Karen. And, and that's really feels that, and, and we want to know ourselves. So we'll, maybe we'll, we'll take a little quiz or we'll, <laughs> we'll read a little, we'll read a little Brene Brown and watch a video and go, yes. You know, um, I mean, as someone who's worked with Brene and her team for 10 years, that's, so I'm like not mocking it at all, but I know there's people that will dive in and speak the language, but to live it yeah. means that U-turn of looking within and Dear Lord, that's not, that's, that's, it's horrible to really see and you can't unsee. And then if your worth is tied up to niceness, it's, but that needs to be shattered. It's, it, it, it's painful, but it needs to be shattered. Yes. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. I just really believe that it's violent. It serves a purpose, but at a big, big expense, like you said, to self and to others and to the systems that we're yeah. in. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't think we could talk about it enough. I don't think so either. And people getting their brains around it too. It, it's like, it again, it's disorienting for, for those that show up in the world like you and I. Mm -hmm. So we've referenced your book. Take me, you know, you wrote a book called Doing Nothing is No Longer an Option. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to take me back to your decision to write this book. Like, mm -hmm. was there a particular moment or experience that catalyzed the idea behind the book? I think it was 2018. I had been working at a church for about seven years at that point. And this is the church that I grew up at and believed in with every ounce of my body um, that what we were doing was good, important work. And in that spring, our senior pastor was found to be power abusive, sexual harassment charges, you know, just like just hit years and years of horrible behavior um, and left the church. And I was in the middle of that storm. And then I'm watching the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement happening. And I'm also watching the Brett, Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And I have a and Trump is in office. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And I'm looking at my family and I am raising two white boys. And I remember having a moment after one Kavanaugh hearing where I just said to a couple of male, white male friends, I was like, do they all like give you a handbook? Or how, like, how am I hearing the same thing over and over again? And so... I started working on what I thought was going to be a blog post. And then that really turned into, wait a second, like I want to widen beyond what we're just seeing with white male patriarchy and power abuse and sexual harassment and, you know, and rape culture and all these. I, I need to like widen this. And I actually really want to take my reader starting in my origin story and kind of go through and really lessen the focus on white men. And really, actually, this is about me. You know, it was it was really fun to point the finger for a while out there at the world. And I think pretty quickly as I started working on the book proposal, I realized this is a story about me. And so the the title comes from, you know, I mentioned this, but in college, I went on this racial justice journey. And they took us to different locations throughout the South. It was like a three-day exhausting bus journey. We like slept on the bus. So it's, you know, you're like, you're already kind of worn down. And they have, it's about 40 students and 20 
uh, 20 of the students are black and 20 are not black. And so you're partnered up. So I'm partnered up with this uh, girl, Katrina. And it was so interesting because I think what our partnership did for me was it let me see the experiences not through my eyes, but through hers as much as I possibly could. Obviously, it wasn't like I became Katrina and I could experience it the way she did. But I was seeing things that I think in the past I would have made excuses for and I couldn't because I was watching her experience a a working plantation that talked about the niceness of the slave owners that had that had owned other people. I was witnessing looking at like a lynching museum and her and other people recounting that they were searching for family names that they were terrified that they would find names of people that they were related to that they didn't know about this part of their family history. And so at one point, we we got back on the bus after we had left the lynching museum where actually someone did find a name of someone in their family and was, uh, I mean, just, it was, I don't, I don't even, I feel like the words, like, it was so, it was like undescribable to witness someone find out something about such deep pain in real time. And... We got back on the bus and white people started coming towards the front of the bus and sharing what they thought were probably helpful things to say, like the Holocaust was hard too, and that they weren't actually there when these people were lynched. So their ancestors were in Europe. And so, you know, they were just all like, so much distancing, so much negotiating of who's to blame. And please, God, say it's not me. And so, I had this moment where Katrina is like looking at me as we're hearing just excuse after excuse tumbling out of white mouths. And she just says, Jenny, go say something. And so I got up there and I, I mean, I, I write about this in the book, but I, I felt like I just started like word vomiting almost of just like, I cannot take the pain away from what I've seen today. Um, but I can work to make a difference. And then I said, doing nothing is no longer an option. And, and that really became almost like my vow, my commitment to the work or those words that when in doubt, like I, I don't need to do everything, but like what I can't do is nothing. And then I kind of take my reader through these like lived out attempts at, okay, so I'm not doing nothing, but I mean, doing everything right. Absolutely not. Like I, I think there's this idea that that uh, that th- that growth is like a light switch. Maybe people in your circle don't actually think that, but I do think there is this. I come from like evangelical white America, where it's like we love a good like before and after like testimonial, right? So it was like I once was blind, but now I see, and I had one of those moments. And guess what? I still messed up so many times after that. And that doesn't mean that my commitment wasn't real. It doesn't mean that my transformation starting point wasn't real. It means that I was unpracticed in the work. And so what I'm trying to do is take the reader through, this is what practicing this work looks like. And I really am hoping that you learn from my mistakes so that you don't repeat them or so that you don't repeat them as frequently because the pursuit of perfection in this work is not the goal. But if we can reduce harm in this work, And if we can reduce harm by how we live our lives, I think that is something worth striving for. You know, my wedding anniversary is coming up and I, I can't be those two almost like commitment times of my life feel almost equal in their weight of, of how much they have anchored me to daily choices that I try to make and daily ways I try to grow and live out these commitments and these beliefs and these values. Thank you for sharing that. Um, What was your thought process as you were working through this book idea and writing about your kind of waking up story as a white woman, like why you as a white woman write this book? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I wrestled with 
whether I should write this book a ton. I mean, I waffled a lot up until the point that I literally sent my first manuscript in. I was like, my first draft manuscript, I was like, okay, we're real, like, we're really sure. Um, and, you know, I, I tell the story of doing nothing is no longer an option on this bus trip. One of my very closest friends is also an author, and her name is Austin Channing Brown. And she wrote about this same bus trip, and she quotes that same line in her book, I'm Still Here. And she would tell me after speaking engagements or people would put, you know, in their reviews or just send her emails that the most frequently quoted thing that she heard from white people was doing nothing is no longer an option. And she would always say to me, when people ask me, what should I do as a white person? I sometimes, I don't know what to tell them because I'm not white. And so what I really tried to lean into with occupying what I found to be kind of what we talked about at the beginning of this this really nuanced, messy circle of I've faced oppression and I've also been the oppressor, right? So like, what tone am I going to strike as a white woman? But specifically on the topic of anti-racism, then I need to be talking about how I have oppressed, right? And And how you heal, how oppressors heal. Because if oppressors don't heal, they're going to keep oppressing. And if oppressors don't face face themselves, they're going to, they're going to keep going without recourse. And so I, what I really became clear with was a couple of things. One, I wanted my reader who most likely, likely will be a white person to not feel like Jenny received grace. And then she turned around and is just smacking all of our hands I mean, I think any white person would say this who is in spaces with people of color where you are trying to work for liberation and flourishing of all people, that the even fact that we get to be in those spaces co-creating together is an example of grace and healing. So I really wanted to make sure that my reader felt convicted and challenged. I was not trying to impress my reader. I, In fact, I was like... I'm going to tell you lots of horrible things that I have done to set you free from this illusion that there's like a way to do this, showing up to this work as a blank slate. You just, no one does. Mm -hmm. No one shows up to this neutral, right? We all have baggage and past that we can point to, small and big. We have all these things that keep us from actually changing the world. And, And I think part of it is admitting that we are we have to look back at our past if we want to move forward. And I think so many times we stay so in the future. Well, we got to build, we got to create, we got to innovate, we got, you know, and it's like, well, let's look where we've been to see where we're going and then to see where we want to go. I think that's the trajectory and muscle we need to build up. So that was part of it. And then I was really clear that I was trying to do and tell stories that could only be told from from a white perspective, like as much, as much as I could, like this book is not filled with like definitions or research. Uh, It really is like lived experience. It's scary to talk about your worst, most racist incidents in your life. It's scary to put that in print. And I, I wasn't seeing that in enough spaces. And I think we need to shatter, shatter that. Right. And so I wanted Mm -hmm. to say, Hey, actually that time that a white coworker told me that she hates how black girls hair smells and I didn't say anything, that was me being racist. She was being racist, I was being racist because I didn't say anything. A 3 second interaction, right? Like it's it's not these alarm bell KKK proud boy, you know, rallies. It is everyday moments that we get to choose which side we're on, the side of the oppressed and not being us being oppressed, but standing with the oppressed or are we standing with the oppressor and maintaining their ability to say, Mm -hmm. I get to say these types of things and it's not going to get challenged 
I remember reading that exchange and had to pause where the woman made the derogatory and racist statement about black women's hair and your response was silence. I had to pause and I sat back and I had a flash of all of those moments. And it was a moment of, of, it was a parts party of anger, some self-loathing. And then I had to go to compassion but also, in my, I was like asking forgiveness for those people in my mind. I'm just going back to the people I knew and didn't knew, know where those things happen and continue to happen. And there was this part of me that's like, never again, right. never again, you know. And 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 so that that leads me. But I think that's that's my protector of perfectionism. We're gonna do anti-racism perfectly. A plus, you know, and plus, 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 plus. <laughs> I mean, hello, because that's how we roll. Yeah. Like if we don't, we don't do something halfway. And then it's, it, 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 I really valued the stories and how you really modeled practice over perfectionism, but also named in a way that was powerfully convicting. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, you know, I, I you know, shame was lurking because it always does sure. around this issue. Yeah. But it was, to say, are you doing this for optics or because it's aligned with your true values? Yeah. Are you doing this to be nice or to say you're the A plus anti-racist white person? And I really, I really, and you spent a good chunk of time talking about perfectionism. And there really is a big intersection with perfectionism and women, but white women in particular. I, I, like, I just want to name that. And you wrote in your book, you even identify as an Enneagram one, which is known as the perfectionist, and it longs for the ideal. I'm wondering if you can tell me about a time when the protector of perfectionism, you know, you talked about one time, if there are any other times, you talked about one of the times that kept you quiet. Are there any other times where the protector of perfectionism kept you quiet instead of speaking up? And and what was going through your head at the time? Oh, okay. Well, when I started working at this church that I write about a lot, we were all rec- we all received this book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. I have never thought of it this way, but I think a lot of people they are racism, sexism, you know, these isms that we have in our everyday institutions and lives is this I mean it, it just it is this giant messy hairball and I think for so many people and I did this for so long is I orbited to prove how not close to the thing I was to prove how I was one of the good ones I was now one of the good white people who gets it white girl that gets it White girl that's down for the cause, right? And I was not, again, I'm not in my mind thinking that that's what I'm doing, right? But there was a supremacy that was happening that I was now better than all these white other white people that didn't care, that weren't doing things, that didn't have a story about being on a bus and they didn't have friends that they could do this work with. What I found was when I started trying to protect that part of my identity, that is when I would be quiet because I was so afraid of doing something that would poke a hole that actually maybe I wasn't just this like good white person. Maybe, maybe I still struggled with racism. Maybe I still struggled with stereotypes. Maybe I, you know, that I was still working on those things that I wasn't actually just a completed A plus perfect project, but that I was still in growth, that I was still moving and growing and evolving, right? And so I write about this story in my book too, but um, I got asked by my friend Austin, who I just keep saying her name, but I, she's, if you have not read her book, please do. And for anyone that's listening, please do. It's so amazing. And she had written her book and then wanted to do a video web series about anti-racism and kind of going beyond the 101 level of conversation that we were having as a kind you know, whenever like something will happen in the news and then we're all talking about like, should this is a, this is 2018 that we did this. It's like, should white people say the N word, you know, and then like everyone kind of talk, there's like articles written about it. It's like, can we say no white people should not use the N word? Can we move? Like, can we 
can we have a conversation beyond that? And so she invited me and another woman um, to co-host this with her. And we invited, we had incredible guests. We had Brene was on. We had Nicole Hannah-Jones, Andre Henry, Mm -hmm. Jasmine Guillory, uh, Maya Shenwart. So we had all these amazing guests. That's not even all of them. But almost the majority of the guests were Black. So oftentimes I would be the only white person sitting in this room having these conversations. And I remember being terrified that I was going to say the wrong thing just terrified. Mm. I'm going to ask something that's so stupid. I'm going to say something that that <laughs> hints that I don't know all this stuff. And so I remember having two conversations um, before we started filming. I remember having one conversation where I said, I just don't think I'm going to say anything. <laughs> and I said this out loud. These were just conversations with myself. So I'm saying to my co-host, I just, I just think I'm not going to say anything and you two can take this. Like I'm gonna, and they were like, "Honey, if you're on camera, we're gonna need for you to say something." I was like, "Shit!" Like, okay. And then I remember saying, "I feel like I'm cramming. I feel like I'm trying to cram before these conversations, so that not an ounce of imperfection comes out. Not an ounce of I don't know things. You know, just not an ounce of mistake." or wrong comes out of me because, and this is why, this is where it clicked for me that it was about my identity because I thought I was concerned about the white audience watching and I wanted them to have me as a model to look to. Like that's so gross sounding now. Like, but I remember thinking that and thinking that so earnestly that I wanted to show white people how to show up in these spaces, how to not center themselves, that a doing so, Rebecca, who was I centering? It was all about me. It wasn't about how do I, t- hey, this might be a part, a hard part of the conversation for my co-host to be talking about. We're talking about really terrible things that are, that are close, that are not just theory for them, that are parts of their family and fears about their children and I'm going to make them carry that all by themselves as opposed to trying to do something that would create a, a, a tiny bit of reprieve for them by me taking on some of that labor. So I just can't beat the, you're not going to do this perfectly drum hard enough. I mean, that's, and this is three years ago. So what am I, I mean, what am I, like, that's part of the fear of putting this book out in the world. And I, I write mm-hmm. about this in my introduction of like, okay, so in order for you to hold this book in your hands, I need to let go, which means there's going to be things in this that tomorrow I'm going to learn and not be able to come back and correct, right? That this book is actually not perfect. Okay. There's just you have, you have a bunch of quotes about perfectionism. And I want to get a little deeper too, because I'm thinking about practice Mm -hmm. and presence over perfectionism right and and being present with your colleagues your Mm co-hosts your friends your community members that presence that the fear of saying the wrong thing i don't think that's dissipated in me or anybody i know what's for me slightly shifting is that I know how to take care of myself mm-hmm. a little better mm-hmm. so I don't do harm to self or others when I don't say the right thing. I think that's the work that I'm in. It's like, how do I convalesce and take care of the parts of me that are freaking out and when I start, and not burden people who are already burdened or could just create? And, and I still do that imperfectly too. It's, it, it is awkward. To, to, to that's a, that's probably a, a nicer word. It's like that, yeah, at minimum, and and it's uncomfortable. And per, the perfectionist perfect protector is like, oh no, we want certainty. Yeah, give me a plan. Yes, and but I love this stood out to me when you said <laughs> around this, and that I was like, okay, it, like I actually now have this like part of my mantra. There's no such thing as a perfect response, but there is such thing as a just one. Mm. And I and, and so I loved and I want to hear you talk more about that. But what I loved is it it gets me out of me 
And it's like, what's just? And because if I'm thinking about what's just for me, then I know I just need to just right. step back. I'm right. not in, I need to not be speaking is kind of one of the boundaries I put on myself. Doesn't always work. Um, but that what's just? And then if I'm not clear on that, I need to ask more questions. I need to get curious. I need to be listening. I need to whatever it may be. But what is just? And And just is not keeping my reputation, my image up. It's what's right, what's true, what's aligned, yeah. you know, with the values that I have. And so I'm still massaging that. Um, but I'd love for you to talk about how you rumble mm-hmm. with that, that, that mantra. Like, I, guess, I think it isn't, there's no such thing as a perfect response, but there is such thing as a just one. Mm-hmm. How do you live that? What does that look like for you in action? So my publisher is a Christian publisher. So I, I feel like I leaned on Bible, maybe like a little bit more than if it would have been <laughs> like not a Christian publisher. So what I'm going to do is do one of the rare things that I did in my book, which was actually quote scripture. And so one of my, I forget what they're even called, but somewhere in my book, I write this from Proverbs that without a vision, the people perish. And I think so many people are doing this work without a vision of what justice looks like, without a vision of what it could look like any other way than serving themselves, right? And I I think you you really need to stop and pause. And I mean, it's literally everything that you just described. It's do I know enough about what justice would be in this space? If I do, then how do I respond? If I don't, then I go back until I know better and then I can like do better the next time. You know, one of the things I'm, I have a eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And one of the things that we are trying to repeat in our house is the question, would you like to try that again? <laughs> and I like so that. I love saying that because so often I want to say, why would you do that thing? Why would you say it this way? Why would you? And I'm flipping between white people and (laughs) myself and my children all, you know, it's like all tangled in my brain. But when I'm talking to my kids, it's often I am trying to get lecture them in my response, right? There is a need to say, like, I'm dealing with like, what is happening? As opposed to, they might know more than I like think they do, and they might need just a moment to try it again. And so I think what I'm trying to do is invite myself into that space again. Hey, Jenny, would you like to try that again? You didn't mm-hmm. respond the way that you wanted to. Just Would you like to try that again? I was um, meeting a new friend recently a black woman that I follow on Instagram that I'm like mildly obsessed with. And we were having lunch and I said something and in my head, I was like, I don't. and so I just said, Hey, I like kept talking for like five more seconds. And I was like, Hey, can I just go back to that thing that I said? And I did it. And her response to me was not, I can't believe you said that I was going to hold it against you. She said, Oh, I know I'm working on pronoun usage too. And we like moved on with the conversation and it was a point of connection and a point of like modeling. It's not that big of a deal to go back and try something again when you make Mm -hmm. it, when you're modeling like, hey, I'm practicing this work. And so it's not, I'm not overly, I can't believe I just said that thing the way that I did. Can you believe it? I'm the worst person ever. And now this person is comforting me <laughs> as opposed right. to we're having a conversation just about the thing that happened and, oh, yeah, mistakes happen and we're both in practice mode. I just think perfection doesn't want you to practice. It doesn't want mm-hmm. you to practice anything. And I think there is so much wrapped up in perfectionism and white work culture of, you know, axioms like fake it till you make it right like arrive and show up and if you're working on things don't let anybody know 
Don't let them in to the fact that you don't know things and that it's not all figured out for you. One of the other quotes that stood out to me is you wrote the pursuit of perfectionism or the pursuit of perfection paralyzes movement while the pursuit of progress energizes and empowers. And I remember you in your book writing about a meeting you were pulled into last minute um, at the, at your church. This is earlier on before the, the scandal that was going on became public. And there was another horrible act of violence uh, against a black man. And everyone was trying to figure out how to handle it. And there was this sense of, I need more information. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to, got how are other people going to do this? And so what do you say to leaders who conflate, who kind of maybe are thinking they're trying to get it right, but they're really conflating that and it's really perfectionism mm-hmm. instead of speaking up and speaking out? Yeah, I don't remember if I write about this at this point in the book, but I would say getting it right for whom? Because that story that I share there were, this wasn't an example of, oh, I didn't have people around my table that could tell me, that would push me, that would challenge me. Shoot, I need to, you know, I need to invite more people of color or women or, you know, whatever demographic you failed that day with your actions. Those people were around the table begging this pastor to say something. Begging, saying, I am terrified for my children because this was after the George Zimmerman was acquitted for killing Trayvon Martin. And so I'm sitting next to a Black man who has a 12-year-old son who is terrified as a father, terrified as a Black man. And the the white pastor's response, exactly what he said, we don't have enough information. We have to see what other churches are going to say. Whose information are you missing? Because you have many people around this circle giving you information. It's just not information that's validating the choice that you've already wanted to make. When for weeks before we knew that this verdict was coming in, for weeks there had been conversations, questions about how are we going to handle This wasn't a Trayvon Martin was murdered meeting. What are we going to do? You know, this was a Trayvon Martin was murdered like two years ago. And now the trial that's been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks that we knew it had an ending is now here and we have to respond. So I think what, you know, we talk about this idea of like prep or you, you brought this up and I think it is. I think if you are being present, you're not practicing perfection, Right. Because I think perfectionism, it keeps score. Perfectionism yes. is calculated. And perfectionism is, uh, it is very black and white. You respond or you don't respond. You know, it is these things. That, it's a binary. It's totally. There's one result. Exactly. There's one end game versus the relationship, the progress, the movement, the, you know, the process. Yeah. It's all about what's the end result, what's finished, what's done so I can check the box, be done. It's tidy. It, it so misses the mark. I mean, in so many areas, but especially when facing, when I face my own racism and trying to be a part of anti-racism, anything, it it shuts that down. It, it, it is the antithesis of progress, not just externally, but internally. Yeah. It freezes. Yeah. It freezes the systems internally and externally that are burdening everybody. It keeps us frozen there. Um, gosh, we could keep talking about this. <laughs> so I, I just, there's one more, one more quote, uh, that you wrote on perfection. I just want to read it briefly. I love how you said, you said, we'll, we will make mistakes. We will be silent when we should have said something. We will speak when we should have listened. We will say the wrong thing. We must let go of the illusion of doing this perfectly. Perfect allies are a myth, an illusory unicorn of white saverism. That was awesome. <laughs> Perfect has things under control, but it's the enemy of growth and liberation. We are in practice mode always, training mode always, learning and unlearning always, humility and teachability mode always. I just, again, mm-hmm. that's getting printed out and it could be oh. just a reminder to myself because 
it's it's process, it's practice, it's it's can I try that again? It is redo and it is and it's also taking care of myself when I mess up and someone's hurt and I don't and how to handle all the ish that comes up. We could keep talking about this um and probably we'll have to have you back to continue this conversation. Oh, I but I I want to just just wrap up with some fun quick fire questions. I like to do this with my guests. Would Ooh. that be fun? Okay. Yes. You know why? Because as an Enneagram one, when I'm in growth mode, I go to seven, which is the enthusiast. So I do know how to have fun. Nice. Nice. I, think. <laughs> I love that. So what are you reading right now? So at the very top is a book of essays on motherhood and middle age called I'll Show Myself Out. Wow. And it's it's so funny. It's so, I'm like laughing out loud. It's really, I'm really enjoying it. And then I'm listening um, to The Dutch House and Tom Hanks is the narrator. And so that's mm. really lovely. What song are you playing on repeat? <laughs> um, so every night we have a dance party as a family. And usually we are listening to The Greatest Showman. <sighs> um and so this is me pretty much like any, yeah, any song from that. Um, but I have been listening to, um, I've been listening to an album by the band Heim a lot. It's like an all sister band. I saw them in concert a few months ago. And oh, fun. So that's like my, per that's my non-mom answer. Nice. Best TV show or movie you've seen recently. I loved Only Murders in the Building. So I just finished season two. So good. It's so good. So good. So, I mean, anything with Steve Martin, I saw him in concert. He is like the definition of a performer. Yes. Because you know when you go to a concert and they vamp in between and you laugh because they're like, oh, it's cool that this person is saying something that I like their music. When the person is actually a professional comedian and so they're going from like, their amazing like musicality talent to their comedic timing like back and forth it was just it was such a treat so anything he's in it. what is your mantra right now what is not what if Ooh, nice what's an unpopular opinion you hold i'm gonna go with meat is gross because i'm a pescatarian <laughs> <laughs> who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human I mean, literally people with a vision and imagination for how the world could be. Artists, writers, activists, people, you know, they say about, I once heard Enneagram once described as we walk into a room and we say, what's broken here and how can we fix it? So people that are giving me imagination for how it could be fixed, not just restored back to what was, but to something even more beautiful. Wow. Wow. It's beautiful for sure. So there's this quote that I just I just love for you as we wrap up our time together. I'd love for you to read in your own voice um, as we wrap up this conversation. So handing it off to you, Jenny. The invitation to racial justice work wasn't rocket science. It was actually very clear. It was the practice of the better, of the vulnerability, of discomfort, of belief, of presence. I had often made it much more complicated than it needed to be. I was not invited to partner with my friends in this work because I was good or exceptional. I was there because I believed them when they said, this is my experience, even when that experience did not match my own. When you shift who you believe, it changes who and what you don't. Everything changes. I was there because believing them meant I was being transformed and letting things go that did not serve us both. But mostly I was there because of love and amazing grace with a clear and imperfect path toward practicing the better. I was learning to belong to myself and mostly to belong to a larger us. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for that reminder of the gift of belief and the power that has when we give that to others um, and to not just belong to ourselves, but to, rem to remember that we're a part of a larger us. So thank you for this conversation. Congratulations on your book launch. Thank you. And I do hope you come back again, but thank you for our conversation yeah, today. Thank you so much. I've really, really loved all the different places that we went. And I just, I'm really grateful for, for you and the work that you're doing. So thank you for asking me.
The more I'm aware of how I use niceness, I feel disappointed in myself or like I just want to take a shower. Nice is a powerful protector, one that does a lot of harm to self and others. And I also see how I'm not necessarily being honest, but instead maybe saying more what I think someone wants to hear. Jenny walked us through many ways niceness shows up, especially when talking about race and speaking up to individual and systems of power. Jenny also reminds us this is a lifelong process that feels hard, but leads to truth. What impact does discerning between nice and kindness have on you? And when does niceness show up for you regularly? What gets in the way of you choosing kindness in the face of being misunderstood or saying something imperfectly? I know when you choose niceness over kindness, you're not off the hook. So to live and lead with more kindness, it requires doing the work to maintain the capacity for discomfort and not always getting it right. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you, where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, choosing kind over nice, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If this was an impactful episode for you, I'd be honored if you left a review, a rating, and share this with someone you think may benefit from it. And you can find this episode, show notes, and sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email and receive free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.